I'd, ask, I'd like to ask you to stand with me today for the reading of the word. <clears throat> today we're, we're taking a break from Corinthians in a sense, but I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is the good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. And he was seen by Peter and then by the twelve, and after that he was seen by more than five hundred of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James, and later by all the apostles, and last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him, for I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. But whatever I am now, It is all because God poured out his special favor on me and not without results. For I have worked harder than any of the other apostles, yet it was not I, but God who was working through me by his grace. So it makes no difference whether I preach or they preach, for we all preach the same message that you've already believed. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So... Uh, I entitled my Easter message Resurrection Easter Eggs, right? Because that's what you think of on Easter is Easter Eggs. So you, you can play that video as an introduction. My name is Warren Robinette. I'm the creator of Adventure, the first action adventure game. This was a video game that I wrote working for Atari in uh, the late 70s. They treated us badly in several different ways. No royalties, no name on the box, no external recognition, being told that we were easily replaceable. They disrespected us. So Warren hatched the perfect plan. What I did was I hid my name in the game, in a secret room that was really hard to get to. When you got in there, the screen filled up with a flashing movie marquee that said, created by Warren Robinette. Atari shipped out 200,000 copies of Adventure before anyone discovered Warren's secret room. How did they find out about that? A 15-year-old boy in Salt Lake City wrote a letter to Atari, and he very clearly explained how to get into the secret room. And Warren wasn't worried at all about repercussions. What are they going to do? Take away my royalty? Well, they weren't giving us any royalties. Fire me, it so happened that I'd already quit. But to Warren's surprise, his act of rebellion was well-received by Atari's new lead game designer, Steve Wright. He's musing to himself about this situation, and he said, it was kind of cool to have hidden surprises in video games. It's like waking up on Easter morning and going out and finding colored Easter eggs under the bushes and flowers. Everything ended all right for Warren Robinette. So, uh, Easter eggs, probably not what you were thinking of, but Easter eggs are really cool. I've been uh, sort of a video game person for a long time. I I actually played that game, Adventure. Like, the little side arrow is actually a spear that you pick up and you carry with you. when When I saw that, I was looking at it, and it came back to me, I remembered playing it. But in my mind, it looked way different back then. It looked way cooler. So, see how far we've come. Um, and so there's, there's kind of, unfortunately, in one sense, probably like a buzz around the idea of Easter eggs because of this new movie that's been released. This, there's a movie that's coming out, came out this weekend, an adaptation of a book called Ready Player One. And uh, it's a sci-fi-ish book about a future time where everybody lives in, in VR. The guy that created this VR world called the Oasis is somebody who... Uh, Hid, he hid an Easter egg inside this huge world that he created, and whoever finds it gets to like own the world. And so it's a movie sort of about Easter eggs, and uh, it's it's a very cool story. Uh, the movie, eh, we'll see. Um, 
So if you just remember, books are always better than movies. The goal of a book is not to be made into a movie, okay? The goal of a book is to be a good story. And then sometimes people make them into movies and they're all right. But uh, uh, some people, I don't know. We'll see, how, we'll see how it turns out. It's made by a director named Steven Spielberg. Um, and uh, we'll see. I have a quote a little later about what that's like. But uh, the idea of Easter egg, Warren Robinette put his name in the game. Like, I made this, and he hid it, and no one found it for like 200,000 copies of the game until this kid finds it. And then for some reason, he writes a letter to Atari and says, here's how you find the, the secret of the game, you know? Which is, it's so awesome that this guy just thought of that and did that. And then he really did sort of change video games forever at that point. Because after that, Atari just wanted to put Easter eggs. And everybody started to think of this idea of putting Easter eggs and stuff. And then hiding them all over their games, their movies, their DVD menus. Like, there's Easter eggs you can find in a lot of different places. It's really cool. And, the, and it's, they generally serve to, like, give you a, a secret weapon or give you, like, some information. Or they... Or they they help you along in the game or they, or they kind of show you something that you, you would need to know about the game. It's really, it's really a cool way of, of kind of communic- communicating something that's hidden and it takes a while to find. My point in all this is that the Bible is filled with Easter eggs, so to speak. For the game that we all play is called life. Except we only get one life. We don't get multiple lives in this one. We get one chance. At least that's how it seems until we begin to understand the true meaning of the scripture, which connects us with the true meaning for our lives. So I wanted to look today at this concept of Easter eggs, and I want to go through the scripture, because the scripture is full of Easter eggs that point to the resurrection. But we can't start right there exactly. We have to start with sort of the main symbol for Christianity. Okay, when I say the main symbol for Christianity, you obviously think, the logo of Harambe. No, you think the cross, right? The cross is like the thing that people wear. They put it on their buildings. They put it everywhere. People distort it. People, you, you get the cross everywhere. It's, it's really sort of crazy because if you made a building and put up a, a huge building and put a cross on top of it in Jesus' day, I'm not sure if anyone would ever go near that building. The message of the cross has sort of been diluted or watered down or kind of come to mean something that it doesn't mean in our society. People walking around with big crosses on their neck would just sort of weird people out in Jesus' day. In fact, probably horrify them. Crucifixion was one of the worst ways of killing somebody that the Romans could think of that was the most painful and excruciating and stretching it out death that they could give that advertised their superiority over this criminal or whoever this was to show everyone that we conquered this person ultimately and now we're making him suffer for coming against us and then we're hanging him up on a cross not because the cross was some kind of religious thing it's just a billboard that says Rome rules bow down to Rome and if you don't this is what's going to happen to you and so crucifixion in their day was not even a topic of conversation people people wouldn't even mention it in polite conversation. It was something that they would sort of use euphemisms for. They, they just didn't even want to go there because it was horrific. So it's interesting that this religion, so to speak, this movement of people begins to proclaim the cross at the very beginning of, of their movement. They're walking around talking about the cross. It's, it's really sort of morbid because it's a symbol of death. This religion that's walking around talking about life has as its symbol the symbol for death in their society. Some people have likened it to us walking around with like an electric chair on our necklace. Like it's a, it's a system of execution that we're advertising. So how do we get from this obsession with a symbol for death to talking about life? The cross in simple terms is just a symbol for the end. It's a symbol for fear and to strike fear in the, the enemies of Rome. And we, we know that this has been sort of watered down in our society because it's just everywhere. It's on buildings. It's on pop stars' necklaces. It's on T-shirts. It's just something that is ubiquitous. And so in a sense, it sort of loses its meaning. And 
for the Christians about the cross was actually not morbid. It's not a morbid obsession with death. Because death has been defeated. If death were the end, it would just be a dark, pointless, depressing religion to sit here and advertise the cross, to advertise execution. But if death doesn't mean what it used to mean, then the cross signifies something else. Death is one thing that everyone faces. That's the one thing we all have in common. And I can sit here and say, we're going to die. We're all going to die. And I'm not morbidly depressed by that thought. The scripture in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, 2 says, It's better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. After all, everyone dies, so the living should take this to heart. If death were the end of life, if death is annihilation, if death is simply these molecules and atoms and this globulous chunk of matter that's now walking around braying out nonsense, falling into the ground and just being absorbed by the worms and then disappearing into nothing, then that makes our life sort of meaningless. Shakespeare, in a famous little snippet from the play Macbeth, said it this way. A king hears about the death of his queen. He says, she should have died hereafter. There would, be, there would have been time for such a word. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And I think nothing could be more true about our existence if death is the end. A tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Some of you know, my dad passed away on December 13th. Got a phone call, went to the hospital. Five days later, he went home. And I've been thinking about this and feeling and grieving my dad. I was good friends with my dad, actually. Um, he was the one that, that, led, that led me to Christ. He's the one that, that raised up uh, us four kids, um, worked 35 years at Boeing. Just a very faithful faithful man that, that gave his life in the service of Christ and his family and the church. And I, I've been learning a lot about this. I, the death is a, is a, it's just so unnatural to us. It's so painful. And, and the grief that I experienced with my dad was, I think I initially went into it feeling like, I'll, I'll get over this. I'm just going to get over it. And death is just not something you get over. I, 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 didn't, I, I didn't get over the death of my dad. De- grief is like, losing a part of yourself it's like a part of you gets torn away and it's gone and then you sort of start to learn how to live without that that part and it still hurts it's still there it's not something that you're just going to get over and get rid of and i don't talk about death today to make light of it i've too recently experienced the grief and loss to belittle this subject matter I rather hope to point out the message of the scriptures of Jesus and of the church is not only death and the cross, but resurrection and new life. I think sometimes we get so caught up in the cross and there's so much to think about and so much to understand about the cross. But the cross is not the end. The cross in so many ways is a starting line for us. Salvation is not the end of our time here. Salvation in so many ways is the starting line. Even the word that we use, salvation, to describe what happens when someone puts their faith in God and we put our faith in Christ and he comes and fills us with his spirit and he gives us new life. The word salvation is also, it also means to be made whole, to be healed. The same word in the Greek, sozo, 
is used when Jesus lifts up a guy that doesn't have any legs and says he sozos him. He, he, he makes him whole. So our salvation is not just about something that's going to happen in the future based on something that we did in the past. It's about being made whole right now and living a resurrected life. Your life is not a tale told by an idiot signifying nothing. Your life is full of deep significance because of the resurrection. Because death has been conquered, the resurrection brings meaning to the whole story of the Bible and significance to every part of our lives. So I want to look at this in the Bible and in the lives and in history and in our lives. That's my outline. Easter eggs in the Bible. Resurrection Easter eggs. Or if you wanted to be unclear, you could say a biblical theology of resurrection. So Easter eggs, not the plastic candy-filled little gut bombs that you find in the bushes, but little pieces of information that are hidden, so to speak, in the Scripture. The resurrection, as you go through the Bible, you come across some weird stories, okay? There's a weird story in the very beginning of the Scripture. Adam and Eve are, are sitting in... Uh, Adam and Eve are created in a garden. God put them there. He says, take care of it. Take care of each other. And I'm going to walk with you. We're going to be in a relationship. Eat of any of these trees that you want, except that one, don't eat of that one. Tree of knowledge of good and evil. When you eat it, you're going to die. And of course, if you know the story, they said, let's eat that from that tree, right? And so they decided to take upon themselves the knowledge of good. We're going to decide for ourselves what's right and wrong, what's good and evil. And we're going to eat that fruit. And it changes everything. It changed everything for us. And God comes and says, what? Where are you? Because they started to hide from God, who they were in close relationship with. And he runs after them. He finds them. He says, why are you hiding from me? Well, because we're naked. Now, remember, God made them naked. They're just walking around naked in the garden, right? And God said, that was good. But they decided, no, it's evil for us to be naked and walk around. You know, it seems like they, to, you know, at this point in time, it feels to me like they had something right there. Like, I'm not getting, I'm not going to be walking around naked anytime soon. Like, I'm still pretty comfortable in my clothes. You know, maybe it's just the effects of sin on me. Um, but God said, it's very good. You guys are in the garden. You have everything I want you to have. And so then they decide, no, what? Being naked is wrong for us. Let's get some leaves and make shorts out of them. Okay, bad start. It was a really bad start for, for our deciding what's good and evil. Leaves are not the best for clothing. So God comes and steps in, and then he begins to talk to them about what's going to happen based on their decision. And there's three characters here. There's Adam and Eve, and they're, they're walking in the garden. There's this, just this talking snake. A talking snake just shows up and starts talking to Eve and says, did God really say that you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? I, I love that statement. If you go back and read the scripture. He says, he, God says to him, eat from any of the trees in the garden except one. The snake comes and says, did God really say you can't eat from any trees? Just this exaggerated, almost true lie. It's, it's, so, it's so like the snake. He's really good at that. Just exaggerating. Oh, you know what? God made all this good. He said you can eat from whatever you want. And then he just, twi- he just twists a little bit. Oh, he said you can't eat any of it? Man, what, a, who, what kind of a jerk he is. You, you guys, look at how good that tree looks. Don't you, don't, you want to, don't you want to eat from that tree? He told you not to eat from it because he knows when you eat of it that you're going to be like him and you're going to get wisdom. They were already like him. They were made in his image. This guy's just feeding them a lie and they're like, yeah, yeah, it does look good. And they made a bad decision. So God comes and he talks to them. He says, Adam, you messed up. Eve, you messed up. And snake, you're dead. And he says in Genesis 3.15, it's a weird thing he says to, them, to this snake. He says, uh, the Lord said to the serpent, uh, verse 14, because you've done this, you're cursed more than all the animals, domestic and wild. You'll crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. 
just the very beginning of the story of the Bible. This is in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. So this is the third chapter into this huge book that we call the Bible. And you read this little snippet. I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. What a weird statement. It's obviously looking forward in the story. But what we, what we begin to understand when we, when we look at the whole story, the resurrection of Jesus begins to make sense of this. It's talking about Jesus. This is what we call the proto-evangel uh, in the scriptures. I think we could call it a resurrection Easter egg. From the very beginning, God is announcing his plan to redeem mankind and to reconcile them to himself, to bring them back into relationship with himself through this one that was going to be born someday. His heel was going to be bruised, but he was going to crush evil's head. That's complete victory. And when we look back in light of the cross, we see that Jesus won victory over sin and death on the cross. And his heels were bruised in the process. Jesus won a crushing victory over sin and death. Later in the story, there's Abraham. He's another guy. He's just sitting by his tent, admiring his flocks. And God shows up and says, I want you to leave your father's house and the land where you're living and go to the land that I'm going to show you. And God begins to communicate with Abraham in a way that's very clear to Abraham, that in a way that God does not communicate to us anymore. This is only between God and Abraham. Like, this is how they talked. God doesn't talk like this to anyone at this point. And I could talk to you about why, but the scripture is clear. In the past, he talked to people in various ways. Now, finally, he's talked to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 11, 1. But anyways, Abraham hears from God very clearly. And he gets up, he takes his family, and he leaves his homeland. He's, he's, he's wandering around. But Abraham and his wife could have no kids. They were childless. And in their day and age, kids are riches. Kids are what you get. Like, kids are the best thing to have. Because you've got to have sheep herders. You've got to have extra hands on your farm. You've got to have people around you. You've got to have your like, own personal army, basically. Because if you don't have kids, you, you're not strong. So Abraham and Sarah were grieving the fact that they couldn't have children. And they knew they were past childbearing age. And then God shows up to Abraham and he says, you're going to have a son. And he's gonna, you're going to be the father of many nations. Your descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars. To this old guy that can't even have kids anymore. But Abraham believed him. It says Abraham believed God and God credited him as righteousness. And when Sarah overheard the angel saying, Next year, you're gonna have, Sarah's going to have a baby. She's sitting in her tent. She's like 75 years old or something. And she's, she laughs to herself. Yeah, right, I'm going to have a baby, <laughs> right? First, we've got to make a baby. Like, we're a little bit past that stage. And like, I'm way past having a baby stage. Like, this is a joke. What, is, what are these angels talking about? They don't even believe it. So after all this time, their, their desire to have a son, to have a child, an heir, is finally fulfilled through the promise of God. They have a baby way past any sort of natural ability to have a baby because God wanted to prove to them that this is the child that I promised to you. This is the one that's going to make all this stuff come true. So Abraham and Sarah are overjoyed and they have their son Isaac. And then we get this weird story in Genesis 22. God calls, God again shows up and talks to Abraham in a way that, in a way that only uh, Abraham could understand in, in a way that God only talked to Abraham. And I, I just repeat again, this doesn't happen today. Because he said, I want you to take your son Isaac and go up on the mountain and sacrifice him to me. Now this becomes a very weird story in the scripture if we don't, if we don't understand the resurrection, if we don't understand the whole story. So as he gets up on the mountain, he's up there, he binds his son. He puts him on an altar. And in Genesis 22.10, the scripture says, Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. And at that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, I'm here. Don't lay a hand on the boy. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your own son, your only son. And then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham named the place, the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use the name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham 
from heaven and said, this is what the Lord says. Because you have obeyed me and not, have not withheld even your own son, your only son, I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you and I will multiply your descendants beyond number like the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies and through your descendants all the nations of the earth will be blessed all because you have obeyed me. He says, you have not withheld even your own son, your only son. And we read that story and think that's disturbing until we get to the end and we see that it's God himself who sacrifices his own son, that God provides a sacrifice in our place. This is what Jesus does in perfect obedience is to offer himself in the place of us, taking our sins upon himself and providing access to us to his righteousness. And we receive this promise. We receive all of Jesus' righteousness by faith. And God puts Jesus' righteousness on us. The book of Hebrews explains this Easter egg, so to speak. In Hebrews chapter eleven seventeen, it says, By faith, Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice to God when testing him, when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God would be able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. And so we begin to see how the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of of new life begins to make sense of the scripture narrative, of the whole story. There's so many more other places that we could look. Ezekiel, a prophet that has a vision of a valley of dry bones that are reanimated and come back to life. They're given new hearts. They're brought back to life. Isaiah, this is, this is probably the number one Easter egg in all of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah prophesying in 700 AD, 700 years before Jesus would appear on the scene. He says this, Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care, yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrow that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life was made an offspring for sin, an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. For he will bear all their sins, and I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels and he bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. It says that he was cut off in midstream. He was struck down. But then it says that it was the Lord's good plan to crush him. And when he has made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants and he will enjoy a long life. Jesus is the clear fulfillment of this passage that was written so many years before he ever existed. The resurrection is a theme that goes throughout Scripture. It's continually pointed toward, and and once it occurs, it becomes very clear what the Scripture was talking about. 
In fact, in Jesus' own teaching, as connected to all the rest of this, he says this in John chapter 2. He's talking to some Jewish leaders, some teachers of the religious law, and they're saying, show us a sign to prove that you're the Messiah. And and the leaders demanded, "What what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miracle, a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied. (coughs) Destroy this temple. They're all in the big temple area. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. What? It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can build it in three days? But when Jesus said, this temple, he meant his own body. But when Jesus... And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. So John, the author of this passage, is saying, yeah, he told these guys he was going to tear down the temple and raise it up in three days. And we were like, yeah. And they were like, what? We took us 46 years to build this. You're nuts. But then after he was raised from the dead, they were like, oh, remember what he said? He was talking about himself. He's the temple. He's changing things up. We get it. We understand it. Resurrection makes sense of the whole of Scripture. And Jesus is, is a part of, the, all, of all of Scripture. He never intended for them to fully get it. Because apart from the resurrection, we don't fully understand the message of the gospel. He told them plainly that he would die throughout his teaching. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be mistreated by the leaders and they're going to grab me and they're going to kill me. And his own disciple gets in his face and he says, no, uh uh-uh, this is not going to happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He knew that they needed to experience, oh, thank you. He knew that they needed to experience the resurrection to fully understand what he was talking about. Christianity is not a message about death and about some future salvation that we just are just waiting for and nothing has changed. Christianity is a message about death and new life right now. Resurrected life that we live from this point forward. We're infused with a new life when we put our faith in Jesus. It doesn't fix everything right away, but it begins to shine lights on the brokenness and begins to change and transform us in a process of growth that's incredible. But it's a supernatural thing. And in the very end of the book, the very end of this story that, that has Easter eggs hidden throughout it about resurrection. This, the symbology of Jesus in the passage of Re- Revelation again points this out in Revelation chapter 5. This is a summation of sort of the whole of the story, the end of the story. And then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. And there was sitting on the inside and the outside, of, there was, ri- I'm sorry, writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll. And it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. And then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, he has won the victory. He's worthy to open the scroll and it's seven seals. So this mighty, victorious Messiah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and he looks over. Then I saw a lamb that looked like as as if it had been slaughtered. But it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes which represented the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. The mighty and victorious lion of the tribe of Judah, when he sees him, it's the lamb that had been slaughtered. Jesus is the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the conquering king. But he's also the sacrificial servant of Isaiah, Isaiah 53. The one who was slaughtered for our sake. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one on the throne And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it for you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And now you have caused them 
to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. The conquering lion is the, the, the lamb who was slaughtered. The resurrection of Jesus is the victory. The resurrection story is a historical account. Just as the, in the rest of Scripture, when you, read, when you read the Bible, God decided to wrap his truth in history. He tells you a story about places like Israel, right? Like the Hittites, like the Amalekites, like the Israelites, like all these people that existed in history. And throughout the Bible, we see it's historical, it's historical. We looked at Daniel, and they said, you know what? Daniel said that uh, Belshazzar was a king. He was never a king. And then they found this big, you know, scroll that said Belshazzar was the king for a little bit. And they're like, oh, okay, we were wrong, sorry. The Bible is right again. Throughout history, we see the Bible just accurate to history. And it would be interesting if all of a sudden the scripture that's been accurate to history just decided to insert a fairy tale about Jesus dying and rising from the dead. Just all of a sudden, your track record is, you know, you're hitting pretty good, like a thousand percent. And then all of a sudden, you just strike out. You just, you just include a fairy tale. And, and even the, the people that are telling the story don't have any reason to sort of make up this fairy tale. It's an interesting way that the resurrection is presented to us in Scripture. And there's a great book about the resurrection of Christ. And a guy named Gary Habernas and Mike Lacona, they, they wrote this book. And they basically make this argument that there are, there are minimal facts about Jesus' life and resurrection that everyone agrees about. Not just people that follow Jesus. Not people that, that proclaim themselves to be Christians. And there are four of these minimal facts plus one that not everyone agrees about because they just, they can't go there. But the first fact is this. Jesus died by crucifixion. Everyone agrees. that No one, no one even disputes that. I, actually, no one that's a historian, no one that studies history uh, from like, just a normal historical perspective disputes that Jesus was a person that existed and that was crucified by the Romans. It's just clear in history. And it's really, just look, just look at that fact for a second. Jesus was crucified by the Romans. If we think about the story of who Jesus is, he's a backwoods rabbi that never went to the right schools. He didn't go to Jerusalem you know, Jerusalem University. He went to like Galilee Training College, you know, Galilee Voc Tech. And then all of a sudden, he's teaching the word with more authority than anyone. They can't understand it. And even so, this guy that's just teaching the word, he's just so incredible. All the people are listening to him, riveted by what he has to say. He never writes anything. He didn't write one word. There's no book there's no the prayer of Jesus. There's no like Jesus and your best life now. There's just like, there's nothing. He didn't write anything. So this backwoods teacher that goes around proclaiming this kingdom of God is coming and I'm going to get killed. And then he ends up getting killed by this powerful Roman empire. We never should have heard of this guy. There's no reason why the name of Jesus should have gone beyond that crucifixion. I mean, he only had 120 followers. 120 people at the most, maybe, you know, maybe a few more, a few less, and 12 trained followers, right? And the three of them that were like the, the trainers of the trainers, I don't know. So these 12 people are all that's left, so to speak, after he's, he's killed by the Romans. This movement is done, except for the resurrection. That's the reason why you've heard the name of Jesus, because he came back from the dead. So everyone agrees that Jesus was crucified. The problem is, why do we even know that? He was nobody. The second is that Jesus' disciples believed that he rose and appeared to them. When we look at a historical document, generally speaking in our culture, when we look at a historical document, we take it at its word and try to understand it. We don't automatically have skepticism about what any historical document says, except the scripture, so to speak. So when we look at the Constitution, we look at the Bill of Rights, we look at uh, the writings of Socrates or Plato or Homer or the Odyssey or the Iliad, 
We don't look at them and say, oh, they just made all this stuff up. This is all BS. John Hancock didn't exist. It was Herbie Hancock, right? We look at him and say, yeah, George Washington existed. And we try to understand what these documents have to say to us. In the same way, the scripture, when historians look at the scripture, they say, it's very clear that these followers of Jesus believed that they saw him and he, that he rose from the dead and they saw him. They believed it. They, weren't, they didn't write it in such a way that it was made up. The way that they wrote it is so backwards. They wouldn't have written it the way it's written if they were making it up. We already know these guys were pretty arrogant, prideful people. We know they were just like us in a lot of ways. So if we were going to make up a story about our new religion, we would make ourselves look good. These guys didn't. They just wrote what happened. And on top of that, in their culture, women were just not important. You know, like, they really did have a patriarchy that was oppressing women in their society on a level that we can't even comprehend. Women were just, like, owned. Women were just part of the estate. Women were not considered to be, maybe you've heard this, they couldn't testify in court because who cares what a woman has to say? You know who cares? Jesus cares. In fact, he appeared to women first. And in their account, these guys raised in the culture that they were in would never have written that the first witnesses of Jesus alive were a bunch of women. That's hogwash to their culture. What? No wonder you guys think Jesus rose from the dead. A bunch of women are making it up. That's what women do. They make up wives' tales. They're just women, right? This is the way they think. And so they write this history from their perspective, and they say, oh, yeah, it was three women that discovered that Jesus had risen from the dead. And he told them to come back and tell us. And they believed the women. They went and ran to the tomb. They would never have written it the way they had written it. So historians look at it and they say, yeah, they wouldn't have put this stuff in there if they were creating this new, you know, thing. Just, just, you know, don't do it, but think about Scientology. Like, (laughs) watch Going Clear or read Going Clear. Like, if you're going to make up a religion, you know, like Ron Hubbard, the sci-fi writer, uh, he made up a pretty weird religion. And it just is a total reflection of, like, his culture and his day and what he thought was cool. And and these guys didn't write like that. They didn't write that DC-9 airplanes were astrojets that went to different planes and all this kind of stuff. It's ridiculous. When we make up a religion, we make ourselves look good. They didn't. The third one is that the church persecutor Paul was suddenly changed. The Paul's writings and the scripture, the New Testament, is not just in a separate category from historical documents. It is a historical document. Paul's writings, Paul's letters are not just a religious thing. They're historical documents that we can look at and say, what do they have to say about history? And when historians look at these things, they say, you know what? Paul's testimony is that he persecuted the church, like I read in 1 Corinthians 15, and then he changed his mind, and he started proclaiming the church. And in fact, most of the letters that we have in the New Testament are letters written by Paul to churches. His letters became scripture. So Paul was transformed. He was somebody who wanted to kill the church, to kill this heretical sect of Judaism that was teaching against the law of Moses. And he he killed a few people. He stood and watched as they killed Stephen. And then Jesus grabbed a hold of him and said, you know who I'm going to use? Guess who I'm going to use to spread the gospel to all the Gentiles? Guess what I'm going to do? You know, if he would have sat down with the 12, you know? Even after he came back from the dead, right? The, The Jesus who's resurrected he's sitting there and he's saying hey guys i'm back guess what i'm gonna do guess who i'm gonna choose they wouldn't have guessed paul in a million years if he gave him like a billion guesses and they just guessed name after name they never would have guessed that guy he's the killer of the church he's the one that wants to end us he hates jesus he hates everything about us and jesus i'm gonna use him he's the one so awesome we've never should have heard about paul except for the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul's transformation is when Jesus shows up and Paul says, look, Jesus appeared to his, to his followers. He appeared to the 12. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the 12. He appeared to 500 people that are still alive. He's writing a letter while they're still alive. 
So if he wrote a letter that said, Jesus came back from the dead, and there's 500 people, go check with them. They could do that at that time. That's a very bold claim for him to make. We look at it from, from our perspective and say, well, whatever, he could have made it up. No, they aren't that stupid. We're the stupid ones, really, in, in a sense. We can't even build pyramids, right? Like, these people were very, were, were highly intelligent just because they didn't have, like, iPhones doesn't make them incapable of understanding logic and reason. If he writes, 500 people are still alive, in his letter, people, someone like me, if I got that letter, I'd be like, I'm gonna go visit them because I'm just like that. I just wanna know, I wanna talk to him and see, like, you saw Jesus alive? Okay, who else? Do you see? Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. So Paul was transformed by this resurrection appearance of Jesus. Now, the, the fourth one is that the brother of Jesus, a cat named James, becomes a follower of Jesus and the leader of the church in Jerusalem. So just put yourself in your family with your siblings, and then all of a sudden, one of your siblings starts spouting off about, I'm the Messiah, <laughs> right? I'm God. I know everything about the scripture. And you're like, bro, we build houses. What are you talking about? I'm leaving. I'm going to go, I'm going to go get my disciples. What? <laughs> Jesus, wake up. And we know in the, stri- in the scripture that his brothers did not believe in him. In fact, they made fun of him when he went home and visited them because he went and visited them right before the feast of uh, tabernacles? No. What was it? The water feast, the feast of lights, the feast of water. I don't remember what it's called. Fountains? Whatever. So he goes, he goes to his hometown, and they're like, Jesus, okay, you know, since you're the Messiah, right? Uh, you should go to Jerusalem, man. Like, don't hang out here. If you're the Messiah, go prove it in Jerusalem. That's where people need to see the Messiah. I don't know. You know, who knows how Jesus responds to him? You know, it doesn't really say. He just says, it's not my time. And they're like, well, whatever. We're going to the festival of course you're not the Messiah because you don't want to come show, you know, you don't want to come prove it at the, at the festival. So Jesus shows up at the festival later. But we see this, this episode to understand his brothers didn't believe in him. I mean, why would you? You know your brothers and sisters. If my brothers started talking like that, I would have to see them come back from the dead to believe what they said. And notice that Paul says he appeared to Peter and then to James and then to 500 people. So Jesus dies comes back from the dead and then he shows up at James house and says I forgive you but I was right <laughs> right and James is like okay I believe I believe and he becomes the leader of the church and gets killed for believing in his brother as the Messiah of Israel as the son of God brothers don't do that brothers don't do that kind of stuff except for the resurrection of Jesus the last one is that the tomb was empty and there's a preponderance of historians that look and say, yeah, the tomb was empty. By all, the, by all accounts, they encountered an empty tomb and they try to come up with reasons for it. Not every skeptical uh, historian would believe this one, would, would hold to this because they're still holding out hope. <laughs> I, I guess you would call it hope that no one can come back from the dead, right? I just hope we can find Jesus' body, right? And every time they find an ossuary, which is a bone box from that, from that era, Somebody from the, the Associated Press runs out and writes a blog real quick about, we found Jesus' body before they even saw it, right? And then like a few weeks later, it's like, oh, no, it said like Jeremiah and his wife were buried here. Oh, and then they're like, oh, sorry, it wasn't there. But uh, they actually found a, a bone box from, that talked about James, that talked about uh, Caiaphas. They've talk, they found characters from the true scriptures that were buried during that time that corroborate the history of the, of the scriptures. But the tomb was empty. This has stumped haters since the third day. Nothing could have been easier for people to prove this wrong than to just go grab his corpse and drag it around town. The Romans would have done this in a second if they had it. When people started talking about Jesus came back from the dead, the Romans were like, what? No, no. We don't, we don't fail in crucifying people. He didn't swoon. He didn't faint. He didn't trick us. We stabbed that sucker through his lung into his heart with a spear and blood pour, and water poured out. He was dead. We, and we know, how, we know how to kill people. And they could have just gone down to the tomb, rolled the stone away, grabbed him and said, here he is. I mean, this is, people are saying it's like the very next day 
People are saying Jesus is back from the dead. People knew where he got buried. They could go down and look for themselves. Joseph of Arimathea is thinking to himself like, oh, I can still use it. That's awesome. <laughs> Inside joke, sorry. <laughs> He's the rich guy that gave Jesus his tomb. And so they found an empty tomb. So I say all these things to you in a very quick way. It might not feel quick to you. But uh, read, read books. Read about the history of the resurrection of Christ. This is the thing that stumps everybody. And my, my, case, my case today is that the resurrection of Christ is what makes sense of the whole Bible. It's what makes sense of the historical facts that we see. And it's what makes sense of the way that people's lives are transformed. The, the biggest thing there is that people, these disciples of Jesus, were transformed. We see it in the scriptures, interestingly enough. Peter is with Jesus. And he says, you're never going to get killed. Like, we're going we're gonna to stand up for you. Then they're in the garden with Jesus, right? And the guys come to arrest Jesus. And Peter's like, let's get him, you know, and cuts off a guy's ear. And Jesus is like, don't do that. Right? We're not, we're, this is not how we fight. And then Peter falls. You know, everybody runs away because Jesus is arrested, right? But Peter's kind of like following along like, I wonder, boldly, secretly, you know. And he's, he's there like around the campfire like watching the trial of Jesus take place at night. And he's kind of just hanging out with the folks that are there. And then the one girl, a little girl says, hey, you're, aren't you from Galilee? Right? And now Peter's deathly afraid of like admitting that he's a follower of Jesus. You, you're, one of the, you're one of Jesus' guys, aren't you? And he's all blankety no, you little blank. And then she's like, no, it is you. No, l- listen to your, listen to your, no, you're the one. And he's like, no, it's not me. Three times he denies that he even knows Jesus. And then two months later, he's standing in the temple in Jerusalem telling all the people around him, you crucified Jesus. He's the Lord of life. Repent and believe in him. It's awesome. He's transformed. He's filled with the power of the resurrection. He's filled with the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Peter just didn't learn his lesson from the little girl, you know. He didn't go back and find her and be like, you know, make me deny Christ. (laughs) He was transformed. He was able to stand up in front of all these people that are saying, look at these idiots. They're drunk. They're stupid. Don't listen to them. And Peter stands up and says, no, they're not. I'm going to tell you what time it is. Jesus is Lord. And you can receive life from him. And you can receive the spirit of God by putting faith in Christ. The promise of the Father that we've wanted for all this time. We can be filled with the spirit of God. This is the, this is the point of the resurrection that I'm trying to make. It transforms us. It transforms people's lives. The resurrection is it's not just about the cross and then Jesus came back from the, from the dead and yay, someday we get to see him. No, Jesus said, I'm going to always be with you. I'm not leaving you as orphans. So these, these are the five facts of the resurrection. We, sh- we never should have heard of Jesus unless he came back from the dead. It's just not reasonable to even consider it. Yet here we stand, followers of Jesus because of the resurrection. It illumines the whole story. It's true to history. And it's a powerful message of transformation because it's the message of reconciliation with the God who we turned our backs on, a restored relationship with the person of Jesus, a new life, and the power to live it, as well as infusing our short life with meaning and the confidence that Jesus was not a mysterious, incomplete, or a complete lie. Jesus is true. Ephesians says it this way in chapter 2, verse 1. Once you were dead because of your disobedience, your many sins. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy. He loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. 
It is only by God's grace that we've been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united to Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed and you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. I just want to clarify the language there. God can point to us in future ages as examples of of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us. That's not saying anything good about us, okay? If you're an example of the incredible wealth of grace of God, it means you're messed up. It doesn't say God can point to you as a holy example of the best living person ever. No. It says you are numbskulls. You do not follow God. You have turned away And God chose to save you by his grace. You're evil. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. And God raised up a people who no one would believe God could love as examples of the wealth of his grace. That's incredible for us. That should be encouraging to you not to go out and sin. Not to say, okay, I'm just going to keep being a knucklehead. No. To say, God, let your grace transform me. Because it says that he gives us new life. He brought us back to life when he, raised, when he raised Christ from the dead. He infused our life with meaning and purpose and power to live out the reality of the fact that we are new creatures in Christ. And he's created good works for us to walk in. It's so incredible, the message of the gospel. Colossians 2 continues, You were buried with Christ when you were baptized. And with him you were raised to new life because you trusted in the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Yeah, the cross is so central to what Jesus accomplished. But I, I just want to say again, it's the starting line. It's the starting line of new life in Christ. The cross is not something that we just sit by and look back. The cross is something that reminds us who we are and the wealth of God's grace to empower us to move forward and to follow Jesus. The good news of Jesus is not only of salvation from hell and, and eternal life. It is the message of new life in Christ that we are made new, recreated as we are reconciled to God that the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead now dwells in us and we can access that power for life. The message of the cross and the resurrection is the starting line. The message empowers us to live new, the new life that we've been looking for, to walk with and know Jesus because we have his spirit in us. We celebrate the resurrection because it brings together our faith, hope, and love. Faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. The Christian faith in its simplest form is to trust that what Jesus did on the cross makes us right with God. And that is the message of transformation. That is the power of God to salvation, to be made whole for those who believe. Hope in his coming again and the love that we didn't even understand before he demonstrated it on the cross. We did not know what love is until Jesus laid down his life for the brothers. And so we now can lay down our lives for others. The message is clear. The God who began all things testifies us through his story, through history and the presence of his spirit that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus loved us so much that he demonstrated this in giving his life so that we could be reconciled to God. I mentioned my dad earlier. Uh, my dad passed away, and I, I was reflecting on a lot of, of what he said, and I, I, I gave his eulogy uh, at, at the 
the memorial service, and I totally botched it. Like, good thing you guys weren't there. I was, like, blubbering through it. And, uh, uh, you know, I still was able to get it out. It was weird how hard it was, honestly, to say that in front of people. But I remember a story about my dad. I, I told this story. It was when I was about five. Do you have that picture? Can you put that picture up? Um, there's a picture of a weird dude smiling in a weird way in a chair. There he is. Um, there's that cat. So uh, he's probably high in that picture, just to let you know. But uh, there he sits. And he had this cross. He had this cross that he received as a wedding gift from some of his family who were kind of like devout Catholic, sort of. He was like a nominal Catholic, but he wasn't even on the Christmas and Easter plan. He was just like on the, you know, the Catholic school dance plan, like going after the Catholic schoolgirls. And so uh, this guy gets this cross, and he and my mom get married. They're kind of hippies doing what they want. And he has a friend that starts telling him about Jesus. About five years in, five years in of this guy telling him about Jesus. I remember my dad telling me the story of, yeah, this guy was named Charlie King. This guy. And uh, so Charlie's, he's a, he's a volunteer fireman with my dad in Federal Way. And uh, my dad is sitting there talking to Charlie. And, and he said, you know, Charlie used to just tell everyone about Jesus. And he, there was even a time where he went into a strip club. And there was a guy in there that he was telling about Jesus. And he stood in front of him, like in front of the stage. And he said, you, you shouldn't be in here. This is not good for your family. You know, it was years later that I found out that was my dad that he was talking to. And... Uh, he didn't, he didn't tell me that when I was a kid. And so my dad, after about five years of hearing about Jesus from Charlie, eventually God just breaks in and transforms him. And he's like, what? I can be right with God by faith? That's it? It's that simple? I can just trust in God and be given the righteousness of Christ? I don't know if he said that. But it was amazing to him. And then he calls Charlie. You know, or actually it was like. He says, Charlie, why didn't you tell me it was so easy? That's what he told him. Why didn't you tell me it was just by faith that I could be made right with God? And they they laughed about it. It was incredible to see him transformed. And we moved into a new house. And he, he, at one point he takes that cross and he takes Jesus off of it. And he takes, the inside was like this cool little Easter egg. Catholic Easter egg inside the cross. You could slide it open. There's candles and like water and like stuff in there, right? And so I was like, that was cool to me. So he chucked that stuff and then uh, he puts the cross back up on the wall right by our front door sort of without Jesus on it. And he said, you know what? My family's going to come and visit us at some point. And they're, they're a really broken family. My dad was a broken person. And when they come to visit us, and they say to me, where is Jesus at? I'm going to say, he's risen. He's alive. And he was so excited. When I was a little kid, I can't even remember. Like, he was just excited to tell me this. He's alive. He's risen. He's not on the cross anymore. There's new life for you in Christ. That's one of the stories that just like was burned into my memory as, as a kid. And that, that was in my journey toward Christ. I remembered it. Jesus is alive. Jesus is risen. He's not separate from us. He's not somewhere else waiting for us. He's here with us. He's here, in fact, today. You can turn to Christ. You could, you could pray to Jesus right now. Just talk to him in your mind and say, help me, Lord. I want to trust in you. And he's there. He's not far from any one of us. If you don't know Jesus, ask him. Ask him to introduce himself to you. He's real. He's alive. He's still with us today. If you do know Jesus, remember the resurrection. All of us are, go- are going to face physical death, but in Christ, we've been given eternal life. And the life that we have in Christ is going to so far surpass anything that we face here. Anything that we go through in this place, the Bible calls light and momentary struggles. Shakespeare was wrong. Or maybe just Macbeth was wrong about life. It's not a tale told by an idiot. Our life is, is a, 
is a story written by God. And it's not full of, of sound and fury signifying nothing. Our life is meant to glorify God. The life that we have now in Christ, as you follow Jesus, he begins to make you more like himself, to continue to spread the movement of the cross, the movement of the church, the movement of Jesus, just as it started back with those 12 guys. And it continues to spread today. So I want to encourage you this morning to embrace new life, to call out to God for new life, to call out to God for more new life, to walk in the newness of life that God has given. There's all those guys that came up here and prayed for, for Chuck and Judy, or Chuck himself, can tell you about it. If you want to pray with somebody, if you want to talk with somebody, come and find me. Come and find one of those people that was praying. Jesus is alive, and that means everything. Let's pray.